0: You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthopechurch. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to First Thessalonians chapter five. Guess, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. Uh, We're going to continue uh, in our series uh, through the first letter to the Thessalonians, which we have titled Hope-Shaped Holiness. And if you are a guest today, know that uh, we walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say, not what I have to say, or Pastor Ryan has to say. We want to know what God has to say, and so we come to the scriptures to know God. And we come here this morning to encounter Him. We don't just come to listen and not be changed. We come to hear God's Word, and when we encounter God through His Word, we're then enabled to submit our lives to Him and experience transformation together. And maybe you're not a believer today. For the first time, you may be in a church that you've never walked into. This is a safe place for you. That this is a place for you to experience God's love in a way that maybe you've never seen it or experienced it before. We want you to know that this is a safe place for you. So if you have, uh, don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those black-covered Bibles uh, in the pews in front of you and turn to page 1048 and follow along with us. Um, <clears throat> maybe you know this, maybe you don't, maybe you're up on your pop culture, but there have been lots of superhero movies uh, released in the last uh, decade. And actually, one of my favorite superhero movies is... Uh, Spider-Man. You might be saying, well, well, which Spider-Man? Because they've released eight in the last 20 years. You're not sure which one you should like and not know which one should we watch. Who, who's the real super, uh, Spider-Man? And so we're like, what is going on here? So Spider-Man is someone who gets his powers, right? He actually is bitten by a spider. And you're like, where is this going? Why does this even matter? Well, his uncle tells him he's struggling with who he is. And he, his uncle comes to him and says, with great power comes great responsibility. Maybe one of the greatest superhero lines in all of any comic books or any shows ever, I think. With great power comes great responsibility. Well, here, church, what we see in this letter is with great relationships come great responsibilities. With great relationships come great responsibilities. We often think of our Lord in a gracious way. We've received His grace and we show grace to others, but oftentimes... Do we think about the responsibility that that grace has afforded us? We have many wonderful relationships here as a church family. But that means what relationships do is they bring you together and they provide, relations, they provide responsibilities for us. And often if we don't recognize those responsibilities, then those relationships begin to crumble. And those relationships begin to erode And those relationships begin to be taken for granted. But we, church, don't come here today just to think in theory about our relationships. Jesus did not come to think in theory about his relationship to his people. No, Jesus had to put the work in, literally give his life for you and me. And so we must think, what are our responsibilities to our relationships here together? So as we walk through the letter, here's what we're going to see. Paul concludes the body of his letter to the Thessalonians by providing clear responsibilities for the church to follow. And if you're a disciple today, if you've called in the name of Jesus, if you're walking with Christ, especially if you're a member here, we talk about making mature disciples. What are we to do today? We have a responsibility to live out the gospel in our relationships. The gospel is impacts our relationships. We no longer view one another in the same way. We no longer treat each other like we did before Christ, but now we've been joined together by the blood of Christ. And when that blood has been given for us, we now respond in a certain way. And so Paul, what he does here, we come to the end of the body of the letter. The conclusion is Next week. And so he comes to the end here of the body and he begins to rattle off. These are commands. Church, this is what you were supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to live with one another. He's focused on the life of the church in its community. We cannot just show up, go through the motions, and go home and never interact with each other. In fact, if you know anyone, you know that it can be difficult. To come and to give your life, to strive hard. Paul is concerned about the life of the Christian community. Paul's vision for the church family is not one who does not know each other, but one who is so vastly interconnected that they are able to love and serve and give in ways that the world can never do. So everyone matters. Everyone matters. Every person in this room right now, from zero to however old is in the room, you matter and you have a part to play here. You are a part of the discipling process here in our church family. We need each other. We need mothers. We need uh, sisters. We need fathers. We need brothers. We need older men. We need younger men. We need older women and younger women. Why? Because this is how God's church, the family of God, has been designed. We need each other and you matter. Please don't come to church ever and feel like you don't matter. Because in God's providence, you are here, whether weekly or maybe this is your first time. But What we see here in this text is God's, Paul's vision of a beautiful family. That yes, has beautiful relationships, but also has beautiful responsibilities. So I want to show us three actions that we take in our relationships. Three actions that we're going to take in our relationships. Number one, first action. The gospel calls us to honor our leaders. To honor our leaders. Now, we come here to the ending of Paul's main section, as I told you. We see him make this transition. He uses the phrase, now we ask you. It's different. And this is a charge. This is a change of pace uh, to the church. He wants them to think well about the ending of his letter. And remember, this letter would have been read aloud to the church in Thessalonica. They would have read it aloud together. And he once again addresses them as brothers and sisters. We've seen this multiple times. This is the 13th time that he has used this phrase, brothers and sisters. He's speaking to the church family, bought with the blood of Christ. As we have seen throughout this letter, what he does is he says, this is who you are, now live that way. You have relationships as brothers and sisters now. What does that mean? He asked them to do something concerning their leaders, which is rare for Paul. We don't see this often in his letters. But when he does, it should catch our attention. So how do we honor our leaders? Well, we first must recognize them. We must recognize them. Look there at verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you, lead you in the Lord, and admonish you. The church of God is made up of brothers and sisters who have equal footing at the cross. But in God's beauty, he saw fit to give a church a certain way. It's structured a certain way. And we use this phrase. This phrase is, we are a Christ-ruled, elder-pastor-led, deacon-served, and congregationally accountable church. We think this is what the Bible teaches. And of course... We don't see these terms here in this passage. But the foundation has been laid. Even if you remember, Acts 17 is the story of Thessalonica being planted. Acts 15 has elders speaking at the first council. So God's church was set up a certain way that there are leaders. There are members. Now Paul, he doesn't name the the leaders as pastors or elders here. I use use pastor elders as, as interchangeably. But he describes them by what they do he doesn't describe them by their title each of these actions leaders take are actions always associated with the office of the pastor always of the elder of the overseer the pastor's elders have responsibilities to the church and what are they look at the actions look at the work that's being done here leaders who labor this is they toil they strive they struggle Right, this is hard work if you are called to the, to the ministry of a pastor, elder. Right, it's connected to 1 Timothy 3 where Paul says if anyone desires the noble task, it's work. It's not easy. Right, the pastor is not someone who only works on Sunday, although that would be nice. They work all the time to pour out their lives for the sake of the church, for their people. Right, there is much expended for the sake of the gospel, whether it's in sermons or counseling or instructing or visiting or praying. The role of the pastor elder is one that is to labor hard, to take their example from Paul. Remember back in chapters 1 and 2. But leaders are also who lead. The pastors are those who lead you in the Lord. Or some of your translations may say who care for you in the Lord. The way the Bible speaks about the pastor-member relationship is that the members have been given into the care of the pastors. Right? They are the under-shepherds. That's what pastor means. They're the under-shepherds of Christ. And so if you're a member here, we talk to you about you've been given into me and Pastor Ryan's our care for you. We will give an account before the Lord when we die for you. And we take this very seriously. But we know that the world's leadership is not designed this way. The pastor is not someone who becomes to lord over you, but to care for you. Jesus says we must be last and servant of all. Pastors are called to lead with humility and gentleness and not power and not wielding their authority around. They're to care and lead the church. Leaders are also who admonish Right, this is to warn through speaking. Right, this is probably the closest equivalent we have to a first century sermon. The, pa- the, the elders, the pastor would stand before the, the congregation and they would warn them. They would admonish them. Don't do this. Instead, do this. Why? Because there are consequences to your actions. If you do not look to Christ, you will be left wanting. That's what this word admonish means. And church, let me be very clear, we're supposed to pay very close attention to the spiritual direction of our pastors. And I I don't just say that to you, I say that to myself. Pastor Ryan is my pastor. I am no different than you. It's not that because I am here preaching regularly it doesn't mean that I don't have a pastor. No, I have a pastor. And I submit my life to him and to you as as our church. There have been many times in uh, the last... Four and a half years where I've gone to Pastor Ryan and said, hey, I'm thinking about this with my family, with my job, with whatever it may be. And I need him to speak into that because I submit my life to him. And so we are all called to submit our lives to someone. At the very least, we're called to submit to Jesus. Jesus. And then the way that Jesus set up his church is that we have leaders that we submit our lives to. And then Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that we submit our lives to one another. Submitting is not a bad thing, this is what we do. Now, you may want to pray for Pastor Ryan because I, that means I'm his pastor and I'm only going to give him a hard time about NC State only winning by a couple points. Okay? So you should pray for him. But I have him to look to, to care for me, to care for my soul, and so do you. We do not take this lightly. Right, The world, as I said, views authority badly. But we must recognize that authority in the gospel is a good thing for us. Because authority can be used in the wrong way. It can be. But when it's governed by the love of Christ and His church, and then authority is beautiful and allows us to flourish in this life. But church, let me be very clear as well. It is our responsibility to call out future pastors. We have a vision here of a disciple-making movement that will multiply into new disciples and into new local churches. What does that mean? It means that we need new pastors. We need more pastors because if we're going to plant churches, that means we need men, qualified men, to plant those churches, to lead those churches. We don't want to be a church that's a red dot church. What do I mean by that? We don't want to be a church that's importing qualified men. No. We want to be a church that's raising qualified men up and then sending them out for the sake of the gospel all around the world. That we may not be a people who hoard them either, but we are a people who freely give and we cry when we send them away one day. That's the vision. It's not to build, the authority here is not to build our own name up, but it's to pour into and to grow. And church, you have a responsibility in that. It's your job. To call out these men. To call out your leaders. And young men, if you're in the room aspiring to the office of pastor, notice the work that's involved here. But it's a good work, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. So now, we see the responsibility of the pastor elders to the church. What's the responsibility between the pastors and the congregation? Well, the congregation, we must respect our leaders. Look there at Verse 13. And to regard them very highly in love because of their work. The church is to regard, that is to respect, esteem in the highest possible way. The church is not to disregard the pastoral leadership of its church. Or the church has the responsibility of calling out their pastors, which I just talked about. Recognizing them. And then submitting to them as Hebrews 13 says. But this is done in love. Not begrudgingly. The church must love their pastors if they're going to respect them highly. We live in a culture, though, that this this gets thrown around. We must not, though, celebratorize, I made made up a word there, pastors. I can sin in the same way you can and probably did this week. I definitely sinned, but maybe like you did this week. And so may we not, this is no pedestal. And may we never do that. We live in a culture that wants to grab people and put them on pedestals and what that does is one of that's going to hurt your faith and it's going to hurt the cause of the gospel. But we are called to highly esteem, to respect, to honor our pastors. Right? But why though? Why should we honor them highly but not make them celebrities? Well, Paul says here. He says because of their work. They're not to be honored because of their title or their name, or the books that they write, or the things that they do, not because of their prestige. They're honored because they work hard and they labor among you. That's why we should esteem our pastors. You don't even know the emails that I get after midnight from Pastor Ryan about things caring for you. I am fast asleep. I've been asleep for two hours, and that man is working for you. For you. This is what it means that we actually help one another see this. Hey, we have leaders who love us. But what's the result of this kind of congregation and leader uh, relationship? Well, it's peace. Look there. Be at peace among yourselves. The command, this is a command to follow, absolutely. It's a general rule of life. But since it follows on the heels of Paul talking about the leaders of the church, it's an encouragement that we should understand it as right leadership produces right peace in God's family. Without correct leadership, without godly leadership, without those being honored, without us having a mutual submissive relationship, then there will not be peace. And this is a commitment both from the church and its pastors To unity, that we may not agree on everything, but we will hold the gospel dearly and clearly. We will be loyal to one another. We will trust one another. We will think the best of one another, congregationally and pastors in the church. We have a responsibility to honor our pastors as they labor among us hard. This shows the gospel's impact on authority in our lives, but we also have responsibilities to one another. So look here at the second action. The gospel calls us to love one another. The gospel calls us to love one another. And he, Paul is probably picking up on uh, what he said in chapter 4 about brotherly love. How is that actually played out? And He comes back to it here. So look at verse 14. And we exhort you, brothers and sisters. He turns now to the congregation and gives a command. Right, this is something that we must do. It's not just for the paid people. It's not just for the people that have a title. It's not just for the pastors or deacons. The church family has a task of maintaining the well-being of the congregation. The whole church. You are needed through mutual comfort, encouragement, support, even forbearance, and service. You have a job to do. We have a job to do. Your help, you help in sharing the burden of our church. Right, you cannot, you cannot be a strong, and healthy church without everyone working together. Without everyone caring for one another. We mature together by helping one another. And these actions are extremely important for the health of a local church. Right, this is the outworking of unity. Right? If these commands are that we're going to see, it's the outworking. I'm going to do this because I am unified in the gospel with you. That's what Paul's saying. And if you didn't know, in the first century, they couldn't just go down and leave this church for another church. There was really only one in town. So you had to work out your problems, which we know there can be. And we must hold unity and hold the gospel there. And so this is what Paul says Warn those who are idle. We should love through warning, right? We are to warn, that is to admonish, it's the same word. So the the church has actually said, hey, you're supposed to admonish as well. This is not passive, right? But who do we warn? We warn the idol, right? If you remember back to chapter 4, this idol is this idea of disruptive people, right? Disruptive, right? Uh, They are people who won't work for themselves, and they, be, they therefore become idle, and they become disruptive because they won't work, and then they become a burden to the church family? Warn them. Right, you've heard it said, idle hands lead to the devil's work. Right, it's probably a summary of Proverbs 16. Right, so Paul says, warn them, or to admonish them, to not be disruptive in the community or in the body, but help each other. And he says, comfort the discouraged. Right? We're to love through comforting. Right? We're to encourage, to build up those who are discouraged. This word for discouraged is the faint-hearted. Right? They're the ones who, it almost seems like the circumstances of life have overwhelmed them. Right? The word picture here is literally that the life has been sucked out of someone. They have nothing left to give. That's that's the word picture that Paul is using here. What do we do do when we comfort though? When we comfort one another, we come and we sit right beside someone and, and the image would be that we hook up our arm and we begin to give a blood transfusion to them. Let me give myself for you. Let me comfort you. Let me encourage you. Let me build you up. But a blood transfusion, it's costly. Your body has to work your body has to, has to figure out how to overcome that. We have to give of ourselves, our time, our talents, our treasures for the sake of each other. If you walked into the room today with the life sucked out of you, my prayer for you is that you see Jesus and that you are built up in the gospel by what we do here together. This is just one way that we do that. We're to come and to sit beside and comfort those who have been beat up by the world. This, is this, this place has to be that because the world is not going to give that to us in any way, shape, or form. But then Paul says, help the weak. We're to love through helping. All right, first of all, we need to view the weak differently because of the gospel. Right, the weak here could be ongoing spiritual need. Right, it could be more than that, but I think Paul is talking about here in the spiritual need, those brothers and sisters who need help to press on in the Lord. If you are weak, you need help. Think about it this way. Think about on the football field, someone gets injured. What what do we do? Well, the the medic comes out, they look at him, And then, then most of the time the players come out and they pick him up, get him on their shoulder, one foot. You know, maybe it's a leg injury and they hop off the field, right, together. That's the kind of help that we're talking about, that we come and we rally around each other. And we put each other on our shoulders and begin to carry each other in the life of walking with Christ. But also think about the image too. I've not really ever been to a game where that person is not cheered and clapped off the field, right? Why? Because they're saying, hey, keep going, keep pressing. You can do this. But that's the way the church should be. Right? But it's oftentimes that we can view the weak, those who struggle. We can look down on them. We can... Forget them. But church, hear me. If we are not a church made up of weak people, we are a weak church. We're a weak church. And so when we come around each other and we begin to help each other and we begin to walk back to the sideline so that we can get some healing, there should be clapping and cheering when someone actually shares their sin struggle. There should be a place where people feel that, hey, I can, I can, I can bear my soul because these people love me. That's something totally different and totally radical from what anything the world can offer us. The church has to be a safe place for that, and it can be in Christ. It can be when we, we're not worried about ourselves or our own thoughts or our own uh, insecurities, but we care and we love each other and we build each other up. But that's going to take something. It says Paul says, be patient with each, with everyone. Right, love through patience. Patience is, also, is, is often connected to God in the Old Testament, right? But now in the New Testament, it's a fruit of the Spirit because God in the Spirit lives in us. We now can be uh, we can be patient with each other. And that enables us to be long-suffering, to be with one another. We're able to understand each other and to overlook offenses. If you've been here for any amount of time, you're going to know that you're going to be offended. You're going to be hurt. At some point, I am going to offend you. At some point, because I know I'm sinful and I know I don't always think of you, then like that's I, I, just going to happen. But we need to be able to understand those, talk about those, and then help each other overlook those, so that we can be united in the gospel. You see, an immature Christian is hard to please, but easily offended. An immature Christian is hard to please, but Really easy to offend. May we not be those kind of people. And two, what well, if this kind of patience, if this was demonstrated, how, how would that transform our churches? How would that transform Covenant Hope? Even though I don't think we're not being unpatient, how would more patience help each other grow in the gospel? How much would it help it spread the gospel all across Youngsville, Wake Forest? How would it help the gospel spread all across North Carolina? Because we are bearing. Being patient, long-suffering with one another, instead of just dropping it at at the drop—you know—leaving at the drop of a hat because we were offended. May we be united. Paul wants us. This is the vision of the church. It's beautiful. Stick it out, and we care for one another, and we build each other up. If I've given a blood transfusion to somebody, they're probably close to me. I'm not leaving them behind. May we be a church that is patient with each other. And Paul says, then. Verse 15, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Right? We should love through pursuing good. The Christians do not respond with evil. We do not uh, repay, that is, to, re- to take revenge. Right? The church must be a place that's different than the world. If you're wronged, you follow the example of Christ who did not revile, who was hit and mocked and spit on and crucified, who could have called his army down in an instant and obliterated everyone. Yet he held his arms out, and he did not revile. He did not repay evil with evil. But he actually gave himself for you and me. But notice what's needed in the gospel because of Christ. We need to be people who are willing to stand against this kind of uh, vengeance. We're to help hold each other back. Because our sinful nature, we want to take revenge for ourselves. I have been wronged. This needs to be righted. But no, we're called to wait. We're tempted to take revenge often. To speak that last word. To tweet that statement. To send that email. To leave something undone to spit in somebody's face. We're tempted to take revenge. You might be saying, well that sounds really, really Christian, Cody. Why should I do that? Well, because Paul has been grounding it the whole time. Because God is at work in you. Because Jesus is returning. That's why. God's going to right all the wrongs. Every wrong that has been done to you will be written. And every wrong that you've done to someone else will be righted. And so in the gospel, we can trust that God does not deal with me as he could have. And he then will help me understand that he's going to right all wrongs. This is in the face of the church facing uh, persecution. The church is like dealing with opposition. He says, do not repay evil with evil. Our faith isn't only a family matter, right? but a way of life displayed before the whole world. If we take revenge, if we do not bear with one another, if we do not, are not patient, if we do not care for the weak and encourage each other, Why would the world want any part of us? May this be a reminder for us that we are here. That we are doing the good. Paul says, do good for one another. To give aid, to give care for one another. This is our focus. I know know there's a group of young men who get on the phone every morning and they begin to share and pray and talk about things. That's giving good to one another. We had a ladies' night on Friday night. We got to talk about Uh, how how do we care for one another? They, They were doing that well. There's multiple ways that this happens that we pursue the good for one another. Many of you painted these bathrooms this week. You gave of your time for a building, yes, but a place to do ministry, to do good for everyone in multiple ways. And all of you are made in ways to do more of the verbal and more of the physical. And we have to figure out how do we do good for one another. We have a responsibility to love one another, and our relationships have been designed with the need for one another, but we also have a relationship towards God. We also have a relationship towards God. So it brings us to our third action this morning. The gospel calls us to seek after God. We enter into this last section, Paul begins to rattle off commands quickly, but these commands center around our relationship with the Lord. And those who have entered into God's family now have been bought with the finished work of Christ we also now have a responsibility back to him. It's not just one way. So any relationship takes an investment. Right, if I wanted my wife to go on a date with me for the first time and then get another date and then get another date, I had to actually pursue her, give, actually give her attention, call her, send her things, buy her flowers. I had to make sure she knew I was interested. And husbands, if you're not doing that now, you should, you should, you should start doing that again. But also, if our relationship with the Lord is, it's just, well, you know, God saved me. I placed my faith in Christ 20 years ago. It's not going to be a great relationship, is it? Your marriage wouldn't be that good if you said, you know, I've never bought my wife flowers since the day we got married. Probably not good. And so Paul says, look there, he says in verse 16, rejoice always. Or right, This command is uh, to, it's, it's to have joy. The word joy helps us, we are to rejoice. Those who have been reconciled to God now experience this. We have a spiritual reality of joy with God. Right? and Paul says it in Philippians 4, rejoice. Again, I will say rejoice. But this rejoicing is not a feeling. Right? It's a deliberate choice. It's a deliberate action that we are going to express joy. You have the ability to express other emotions like fear and anger and sadness. Absolutely. But even in the midst of those emotions, you choose joy. You rejoice. Rejoicing is rooted in knowing the goodness of God and knowing that he is working no matter what. Now let me be very clear. We're not to bury our feelings. Right? We have feelings on purpose. God has made us certain ways. And some of us like to hide our emotions while some of us like to show our emotions. But we're never called to, to just not deal with them. right? Instead, we need to be people who rejoice despite the feelings that we have. Right? Then, through the power of the gospel, our feelings can be transformed into joy. Not that they go away, not that, they have to be, not that they, you can ever have fear, anger, or sadness, but that you always see that God is working, and therefore you can be joyful. Our feelings and our actions are then transformed and rooted in the gospel. Paul says, too, pray constantly. Right, pray constantly. Prayer is the way that we communicate to God. He hears us. Right, he wants us uh, to talk with Him. He wants to commune with us. Paul qualifies our prayer, we're not to just pray, but to pray constantly. So does this mean we've got to pray literally all the time? Like literally only pray? I don't think so. Right, he's describing the kind of prayer life we should have. I remember Jesus said when you pray in the Sermon on the Mount. So He's assuming you're praying Our prayer lives should be common, consistent, and confident. Common, consistent, and confident. Regular and extended times of prayer, not multitasking, that we give ourselves to pray. And you may say, I don't even know where to start. Open the Bible, turn to the middle part of the Bible, and you see the Psalms there, and begin to read those and begin to pray those, because that's what those are. They're songs of prayer. Pray the Bible. Open up one of Paul's letters, and as you read him, say, you, you, we need to walk in Christ, you need to live this way. Just ask the Lord, hey, God, make me this kind of person. Just start there, five minutes. Start small, right? Maybe work your way up to a, a half day of prayer or a whole night of prayer. But start small. Husbands, pray with your wives. Dads, pray with your children. Wives, pray with your husbands and mothers. Pray with your children at any chance you get start small children write down your prayer request kids in the room you can do this write down your prayer requests, and go to your to your mom and dad and say can you pray with me what a wonderful way for our children to express those to us right and two what a wonderful way for us to engage our children in praying with God and kids when you do that I think that the Lord will work that doesn't mean that your mom and dad has a, the time right then and there to pray but then they will be reminded to set time aside to pray with you. And so they begin, parents, then we are able to shape how our children pray. Remember, the basic purpose of prayer is not to to bend God's will to ours, but that our wills are bent to His. Our wills are bent to His. Prayer is not to get this stuff, but it's to help our hearts be transformed to look more like Jesus. And then thirdly, He says, He says, in verse 18, give thanks in everything. Give thanks in everything. Finally, we're to give thanks in everything. Give, meaning that we're to, uh, to express or we're to show gratitude, right, to God, to each other, our church family, multiple things, right? He says, give thanks, right? Do not complain is the opposite of that. It's really easy to complain. And just to confess, I was in Sam's Club yesterday and was packed. And I was trying to find things that I couldn't find. And I'm frustrated. I'm trying to drive this massive cart with, with my wife. I mean, I can't find it. I'm complaining. The Lord says, give thanks. Give thanks in everything. My job's hard. If maybe you feel that way. Whatever it is, we're called to give thanks. We're called to vocalize that Thanksgiving. Why? Because hardship is where we taste and see that God is good. The world wants to fool you that you don't need him. The world wants to fool you that you have it on your own. Instead, showing gratitude, expressing that gratitude is a way to remind ourselves of the gospel that Jesus came for us and that Jesus is returning. Say thank you. Just say thank you. It's a a small way Parents, if, you, if you've got kids in nursery or kids in our equip hour, say thank you to those teachers. Just a small way that we get to begin to voice our gratitude. Find ways to say thank you. Why should we do this? Continue in verse 18. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will. Literally, God is willing it in you. If you have been saved and bought with the blood of Jesus, if you've been transformed by that gospel, then you have the ability to obey You have the ability to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. Our lives have been changed, but only by the blood of Christ. We are blessed by being drawn into the ability to do God's will. And then, when we actually do God's will, we experience that joy that Paul is talking about. Even when when we don't feel like it. And then, fourthly, Paul says in verse 19, don't stifle the spirit. Now, he moves away from positive commands here. He moves moves to a negative. We must not stifle the Spirit. That is, do not quench the Holy Spirit. It's this image of throwing water on a fire. Don't do that. The Spirit, of course, is a third person of the Trinity. He's fully God. He indwells us as his people. He helps us, empower us to live out the gospel. He works in and through us in multiple ways. And Paul says, be careful do not hold him back from working. Do not hold him back from working in other people either, even in corporate worship. And there are many ways that the Spirit works in us. Right? Paul zeroes in here on prophecy. Look there at verse 20. He says, Don't despise prophecy. So the, the main heading is, Don't stifle the Spirit. Well, how, how were they, how was a possible way to do that? Well, don't despise prophecies. But before we heed this command, we need to understand what prophecies actually are. Often we think of prophecy as this like thing where we get to divine the future, and uh, we just you know we get to have this really cool thing where you know I knew that was going to happen. No, that's not the case, right? Prophecy, biblically speaking, is given to build up the church with a word from God. That's generally what prophecy is, right? All in the Old Testament, given to God's people to build up His people. Right in the New Testament, given to God's people to build up the church, and we can divine. Define prophecy as divine speech in accordance with the gospel. Prophecy always has something to do with Jesus and his people. His people is a broader category. And what you see in the Old Testament is about God working in his people. So it, when you get to the New Testament, though, we see we have, there are prophets, there are people who speak. All right, but we don't have the same kind of prophets or apostles today. So we don't have the same kind of prophecy the way that God works, Paul says it's a gift in 1 Corinthians. So what does that look like? Well, it's insight, maybe into the scriptures, maybe into life. It's applied wisdom. It's discernment. Right? Maybe someone's asked you a question, and that totally changed your direction in life. Maybe, maybe someone was just, by God's spirit, was able to help you think of something different. I can remember uh, the pastor at my home church. I was going through a really difficult time. And really, just to be honest with you, I was in sin. And he didn't even know. I hadn't confessed that to him yet. And he asked me, he said, well, you know, would this, would this hinder you from, from something? I can't even remember exactly how he said it. He didn't even know it, but that broke me. And maybe, maybe that was a Spirit's way of using him to really get to me because I trusted him, because I loved him, because I cared for him. And when he said that to me, it just broke me. It's insight into the Scriptures and into our lives. Right? This prophecy concerning Jesus and his people and that it's from God, we're not to despise that, I meaning we're not to reject it immediately. Right? There are two sides of the seesaw we don't need to fall off. Right? Believing everything we hear is prophecy or rejecting everything immediately. Right? If I know us, if I know my, you know my own upbringing, it would be that I don't need to reject what the Spirit's doing immediately. Well, then what are we to do? Because most of us in the room, I'm guessing, are a little like skittish of of even this kind of idea. We're to test these things. What should we think about the the work? Well, we have to be balanced. Look at verse 21. We're to test all things. Right? The we here is plural. That means the whole church is called to test these things. We have a responsibility to connect, uh, to correctly identify prophecy. Anything that claims to be from God. But how should we do this? Well, number one, we should test from the scriptures. Is this accord with what God has said? We believe this is God's word. Is it correct with Jesus Christ that he is fully divine, fully man? Right? Does it it hinder the gospel in any way? Does it diminish it in any way? Well, then then it's not prophecy. What about the character of the speaker? Does it build up the church? Does it build up the church members? There's a way for us to think about God working through the Spirit. Right? We know what's what's false by knowing what's true, right? What, what do they do? The, the folks that are trying to catch counterfeit money, they literally put you in a room and you got to study it, study the, the actual bills. And so when, you, when they put one of those fake counterfeit bills in there, they can see it immediately. That means we have to know God's Word and we have to know each other that so we're able to help one another. And then Paul says, Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. The good here is the good message, the good word, right? Coming from the, the potential prophecy. What has been tested must now be put into practice. What accords with scriptures and the gospel must be held on to. Why? We are to stay away from every kind of evil. Any kind of prophecy that diminishes Christ or any teaching that would ever diminish Christ, we're called to forget it, to remove it, to reject it. But we're to hold on to things that are good. That Christ is fully man. And fully God. They came for you and me, for everyone, anyone who would believe. That's when we begin to miss those things, is when we are start to have trouble. Through Christ, through His person and His work, we have been brought into these wonderful relationships with our leaders, with our church family, and with God. And Paul, what he wants, he sees a beautiful vision of a church that's giving itself away, who's investing, who's providing, who's comforting, all of these things that he says here. Wonderful relationships, wonderful things to do with one another. And it's in these relationships, in our relationships, in our relationship with the Lord, that we are able to display the gospel. I pray, church, that we will be a people who display the gospel in our relationships. Pray with me. God, you are so good to us. I pray today that we would be these kinds of people. Lots of things here, God. Would we think over it? Would we we pray over these things that we may be these kinds of people? That our church family would would be demonstrated by the power of the gospel in and through us. We love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.